The Social Security Administration runs a service that allows financial institutions to digitally verify the Social Security numbers of their customers. Backers of the system, though, say it's at risk for what they call a death spiral from a steep increase in user fees. This comes as the system has been highlighted as a way the government should reduce improper payments and fraud. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. And Justin, tell us more about this SSA system and the death spiral it's in. So it's called the Electronic Consent-Based Social Security Number Verification System, or ECBSV for short. We're not really short, but it's been around since 2020. Congress directed SSA to establish this fee-based system as part of the Banking Regulatory Reform Bill that passed back in 2018. And it provides authorized users with an automatic yes-no answer to verify whether a social security number, name, and date of birth math SSA records. And it's quietly become really one of the first federal systems that offers real-time digital identity proofing. But there's a problem. Katie Wexler is co-executive director of the Consumer First Coalition. She says ECBSV is working well, but the fees that have increased drastically over the last couple of years are putting the entire system at risk. Here she is testifying before the House Ways and Means Committee late last month. I do not say this lightly. The ECBSV system is at risk of collapse if changes are not made. We do think this new tier structure is going to discourage use from both the current users and possible users. One user that initially was expected to pay $276,500 is about to be expected to pay $6.25 million for the same service. That's 22-fold increase over just two years. That discourages use. That's like Netflix saying your $15 a month subscription is going up to $330. Yeah, and this is something that SSA is charging. What, what else do we know about this whole fee structure, Justin? Yeah, SSA is required to recover the funds for both developing and operating ECBSV. It's a fee-funded service. It's actually outside of SSA, what it considers its main mission of providing federal benefits. So it kind of has to be something that pays for itself. When SSA launched ECBSV back in 2020, its fees were much lower. It was about $400 a year for a user to submit up to 1,000 transactions or names and social security numbers. And then it was up to about $276,000 a year for up to 50 million transactions. So essentially, you know, a couple cents per transaction for some of these financial institutions, not a lot for them. But in the latest fee schedule published back in May, those submitting between 15 and 20 million cases will be subject to $6.25 million dollars. And those between $25 million and $75 million will be subject to an $8.25 million annual fee. So even for these banks and credit card companies, a lot more money. The new fee structure goes into effect in July. I talked to Jeremy Grant. He's coordinator of the Better Identity Coalition. And he pointed out that the costs of developing the ECBSV system may have gone a little bit higher than what SSA originally anticipated, and that's what's driving the increased costs. Industry's perfectly fine having all of this DC reimbursable, but if you're dealing with a number much higher than anybody ever expected, and then you're saying that the whole thing has to be recouped in three years, or what you're basically seeing in the new fee structure that SSA has proposed is that the rates are getting so expensive that it, we think it's unfortunately going to further disincent use of the system, which is then going to force SSA a year from now to raise rates even more. 
Yeah, good reason they're calling it a death spiral. So what does SSA have to say about this? Well, as Jeremy Grant pointed out in his response, their position is that they have to recoup these funds within the next three years. And they said in this notice that they're trying to recoup $38 million over three years, which is why you're seeing these big fees. And SSA is essentially saying they have to follow appropriations law in recouping these funds over that time frame. They are also saying that they need to get this money back so that they don't use their quote unquote administrative funds for ECBSV work and reduce the amount of administrative funding available to serve the public. So that's SSA's position at this point. They haven't said that they're going to change the fee structure, but they are saying that they're working with the Consumer First Coalition and the users of ECBSV to try to come up with a solution here. Yeah, it sounds like an immovable object being met by an irresistible force. So what are any potential solutions that have come to light? Wexler's group, the Consumer First Coalition, is recommending Congress extend the time frame. SSA has to recover ECBSV costs to 10 years. That doesn't necessarily address the funding availability, so we'll have to see what SSA has to say about any legislative language that's put forward. So far, no lawmakers have put forward a bill or even language that would address this issue. Several lawmakers did send the Government Accountability Office a letter last fall about rising fees, and GAO is actually looking into the system, the fees, the costs, and and actually doing an audit. But it just got underway, so it might be a while before that's completed. And the point of all this, though, has to do with improper payments, including from Social Security itself and fraudulent use of Social Security numbers to get other things out of people that are not entitled to them, correct? Yeah, well, that's why this is so interesting. This current system is used just by financial institutions to verify that people applying to a credit card or to the bank are who they say they are. But there's a recommendation to expand ECBSV to other users, and that could help drive more fees, drive down the costs. But the challenges there are that SSA hasn't been authorized so far to add users beyond financial institutions to the system. They are coming up with a plan to actually do Social Security verification for federal agencies. We don't know the details of that plan quite yet. But this issue has been highlighted by the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, uh, Social Security verification as a best practices in in the wake of the pandemic and all the fraud that we saw during that time. $5.4 billion in small business administration loans, for example. A PRAC alert said that Social Security verification, like the type that ECBSV performs, should be a best practice for federal programs going forward. I spoke with Linda Miller, former Deputy Executive Director of the PRAC, about that issue. It's definitely going to help a lot because the fact that very little Social Security number checking is happening right now is being exploited by fraud actors with, you know, abandoned. It's not a panacea. If you're using a full stolen identity without someone's knowledge, then that social security number is going to match up if they have the other data elements. But if it's a synthetic identity where the fraud actor is using a legitimate social security number from one person with information that's either fabricated or stolen from another person to create a synthetic identity, that's going to flag that immediately. Right, but she's on to something there, and that is the wider the user base that's using the system, the less it is 
for each individual transaction and each individual organization. So does SSA, Justin, have any plans to extend this to other agencies? It has a general plan to extend Social Security verification to other federal agencies, federal benefits programs specifically. It published a notice in the Unified Agenda earlier this year that says they will put out a rulemaking in early 2024 detailing the quote-unquote circumstances under which SSA may disclose SSN information to other federal agencies. They haven't said whether they're going to use ECBSV. Jeremy Grant says it makes sense to use the same IT infrastructure, but again, we don't have a broader federal strategy for digital identity verification, and he says that's a problem. This is sort of gets, you know, to sort of the Better Identity Coalition's core thesis, which is if I as an American have already gone through a process, whether it's with SSA to have them give me a number, at the DMV to get a driver's license, with the State Department to get a passport, why can't I ask those agencies to vouch for me when I'm trying to prove who I am online to do the next thing? And I think without an overarching digital identity strategy that sort of focuses on ways that we can leverage some of these newer tools to solve identity proofing challenges in every sector, we're going to continue to be struggling as a country to really deal with all the identity-related cybercrime and fraud that we see. And again, that's Jeremy Grant, coordinator of the Better Identity Coalition. He also served in the National Institute of Standards and Technology doing identity work during the Obama administration. And this is Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks for that report. You're welcome, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law 
in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask 
Is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the I, I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.